Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. Today was day 55 of the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings and most of the day was spent uh, with cross-examination of Chief Superintendent at the time, just Superintendent, Darren Campbell. Now, uh, Superintendent Campbell was on the stand yesterday doing his direct examination with Mass Casualty Commission uh, lawyer and uh, Today, it was for the lawyers, for their participants, to cross-examine uh, Superintendent Campbell, and uh, many took uh, their opportunity to do so. Before I talk about some of those, uh, another bit of news happened today, which was that uh, Lisa Banfield's charges of supplying ammunition to her spouse, Gabriel Wartman, were formally withdrawn. As I mentioned yesterday, she has completed the restorative justice process, uh, and that means that when you, you do something outside of court and you come back and your charges are withdrawn uh, from provincial court. Usually, uh, you know, reserved for first-time offenders, first-time charged people, people without a criminal record, and uh, for relatively minor offenses, which uh, this would have been even considering the scale of uh, what happened with uh, Wartman himself. So, uh, that was interesting. And we also got to hear at the end of the day, or close to the end of the day, from... Uh, James Lockyer, who is Ms. Banfield's lawyer, uh, based out of Toronto, well-known uh, certainly among lawyers uh, nationally for his work with the uh, wrongfully uh, convicted, among others. So, uh, some interesting uh, things happened today. So, with uh, Ms. Banfield, just reading some of the news reports from court this morning, provincial court, where the charges were withdrawn, there was a, a crown that had stepped in for the main crown that was handling the case, Sean McDonald, and uh, it was done before Judge Theodore Tax. And in his comments that were reported in the Saltwire article, at least, Judge Tax said, I don't know what you did through the restorative justice process, but I'm glad it's completed and everybody can go about their, their lives. So uh, that tells me that it was never publicized in court what Miss Banfield's obligations were, her responsibilities to uh, the restorative justice process. Hearing from the families that there was nothing to, that involved them in any way. So uh, adding all those things up, it seems very clear that the condition, maybe the sole condition was for Miss Banfield to testify at the Mass Casualty Commission and that was enough to have her charges withdrawn. So, very interesting in a number of senses that nobody was saying what was going on, that she committed to do something which she could have been subpoenaed to do anyway as part of her restorative justice process to get her charges withdrawn. So, all goes around to, uh, to a number of things. And uh, a real, uh, perhaps, discussion of the quality of those charges anyway, which I'll get to when I uh, come to... Mr. Lockyer's questions, which were pretty interesting for uh, Superintendent Campbell. But before that, there were some other lawyers that had cross-examination questions I want to talk about. The first one that uh, was at the podium was Rob Pinio from Patterson Law, represents, which represents most of the uh, family uh, participants. One of the first things he talked about, people may have been wondering why he spent some time on this, was questioning Superintendent Campbell as to why he didn't have a scribe. So that is another officer assigned to basically stand next to them, take notes on everything that happens, discussions, decisions, um, you know, things that were information that was conveyed, all of that stuff that would go down in notes. We heard earlier in the proceedings that Staff Sergeant 
West did have a scribe, and it was somebody that was, because he's taking in information, trying to make decisions, talking to people, doesn't want to take time to uh, make notes when you should be making decisions. So here's Superintendent Campbell, uh, you know, higher up in rank than Staff Sergeant West and didn't have a scribe. Well, why is that relevant? Well, not because, hey, he's a senior officer, he should have what everybody else has. It's to establish the credibility of his notes of his recollection. Notes made at the time contemporaneous with the activity that they're covering are seen usually to be more credible than something that's made the next day, a week later, or a year later, as uh, Superintendent Campbell did with some of his uh, timeline notes. So that goes to, it sort of it undermines to an extent the credibility of somebody if they haven't made those notes contemporaneously, particularly if you're comparing their account to somebody who has made uh, contemporaneous notes. So that was, uh, that was why Rob Pinio was uh, focusing on that, just to um, put in the proper context the evidence that Superintendent Campbell is giving. So they went through some from Rob Pinio, and I'll jump ahead to uh, Josh Bryson, who was one of the la later lawyers to cross-examine. We're asking about uh, details of the press conferences, details uh, that Superintendent Campbell gave in the press conferences where he was speaking. And there was a number of them. So one was uh, that during the uh, initial press conference that Darren Campbell gave, he said that it was important to note important for the public to note, that there was only one way in and one way out of Portapik. Uh, well, we know that wasn't true. Uh, there was the Blueberry Road, which uh, the theory is that that's where Wartman left, how he left the community. So saying so seemed to bolster the credibility of the RCMP at the time to say, hey, we thought we had this guy covered. There was only one way in and out. Uh, so that was a notable error in his first uh, press conference. Also, just a, a point that Rob Pinio made, which was a good one, which was after Andrew McDonald, Andrew and Kate McDonald came out of Portapic, the next car behind them was Dave Faulkner, uh, the EMO uh, manager who was shot at the next morning at the Onslow Fire Hall. He was there with his wife, former residents of Portapic, had been in there visiting, could have certainly provided more local information if they were asked any questions, and it was sort of strange that they weren't uh, questioned at that time. So Superintendent Campbell, of course, wasn't there at that time, and he wasn't involved in many operational decisions or any really at that time, but other than to deploy the critical incident package, which, uh, which I'll talk about as well. Uh, but he was asked to comment on these as a superior officer, some of these decisions that were made throughout the, uh, throughout the 13 hours. And then, um, you know, how that all fed into what was uh, discussed during the press conferences. Also noted in the press conference that Wartman was wearing a uniform, that uh, Lisa Banfield had said that he was wearing a uniform. She did not say that in her first statement to the police the morning of the 19th. She said he was wearing uh, black jeans, a burnt orange plaid shirt, and a black hat uh, with a, a, a vest, some sort a reflective vest. So, well, why is that important? Because if you say he was wearing a uniform, that shows um, it was advantageous, I guess, for the RCMP to have the public think this, help explains why, or justify why, in some extent, why it would have been very difficult to catch Wartman. He's wearing a police uniform. Well, at one point the next day he was, but when he first uh, left, 
uh, was last seen by Lisa Banfield, he was not wearing that uniform. And so, um, wasn't in that kind of disguise at first. Also, um, uh, Superintendent Campbell said during that press conference that the first responders had provided life-saving uh, care to residents, the citizens in Portapik, which is not accurate. They provided some care, some injuries, but they were mostly, um, you know, superficial in a sense, not certainly not potentially fatal. Uh, some care was provided, but he certainly overstated that. I'll just jump ahead a little bit to Josh Bryson's question on the same kind of topic. Pointed out in the, uh, or asked the question in the, I think later press conference that uh, ERT resources were uh, deployed and they were there within minutes, it says, but actually it took three hours, which may not be a long, you know, it wasn't like anybody was lingering or taking a laissez-faire approach, but it just took that long. But in the press conference, he says they were there within minutes, which uh, certainly wasn't true and overstated the, uh, how quickly they were, they were there. Uh, so some mistakes, certainly uh, significant mistakes in the press conference information that was conveyed to the public. And, you know, everything, uh, you know, we heard from uh, Superintendent Campbell yesterday and today that how carefully everything was um, thought out before it was conveyed to the public. And so certainly, uh, you know, if... If it's carefully thought out to exclude things like to make a model of the weapons and these sorts of decisions, well, I think you have to say these um, half-truths, misleading information, untruths were also carefully thought out before being conveyed to the public, all of which uh, seem to be done, done in an attempt to convey the RCP in a better light. Okay, Rob Peniel uh, finished off his uh, cross-examination by reading out the some of the 911 transcript of the children describing Wartman, describing the police car, describing that he's the neighbor and adventurist in detail. Because there was suggestion yesterday from uh, Superintendent Campbell that perhaps Jamie Blair didn't describe the uh, gunman in sufficient detail, which of course wasn't true either. But I think Rob would just Rob Pino just wanted to have it confirmed that that description was given and it was given in great detail. Again, um, just echo things I've said before, the, the poise of these uh, children and being able to convey that information is just uh, incredible, impressive uh, under the circumstances, under any circumstances. So after uh, Rob Pino was uh, Thomas McDonald, Thomas McDonald uh, was involved in the Desmond Inquiry, you know him quite well. He didn't uh, have many questions uh, in addition to Rob Pino's. He sort of took the bulk of the topics. He asked uh, Tom McDonald did about the second IR team and uh, Superintendent Campbell says, well, that's a decision for those on the ground to make, uh, not those at a distance, which is interesting because actually the decision was made by those at a distance. Uh, it was made by staff sergeants who were not there on the ground, contrary to what the constables uh, on the ground, on the scene in Portapik, uh, wanted to do and were inclined to do. So uh, interesting commentary there. I think that confirms what I say, like the... This decision should be brought down as low as possible, I think, to you know, ground level to people who are on the scene. He also asked about uh, Alert Ready and how that is working now. Uh, Superintendent Campbell said that the critical incident commander, the risk manager, who's the staff sergeant that oversees things until there's a critical incident commander, and the criminal operations officer are all authorized to... Uh, issue alerts or, or to direct alerts to be issued. 
I think that still needs to go further that, uh, that all officers should have the training and the authority to make that kind of request. After uh, Tom McDonald was Tara Miller, who I also know was involved in the Desmond Inquiry, asking about some of the recommendations from the McNeil report of the Moncton shooting. Among those are that uh, talked about a centralized communication center. We've already talked about this before with the Staff Sergeant West and the uh, command center being created on scene close by events rather than there being a central one. It seems like now there is that central one in the Operational Communication Center in uh, Burnside and that the RCMP critical operations would be directed from there rather than trying to bring everything onto the scene in disparate parts of Nova Scotia. She also uh, asked Superintendent Campbell about GPS and that has not been, we learned, fully implemented yet into the portable radios that the officers carry, which certainly should be. And uh, she asked about air services. It doesn't appear from Superintendent Campbell's evidence that the air services issue, that is the lack of air service, the lack of dependability of the air service, has been resolved in any significant way. And then uh, the IR training, the immediate action rapid deployment training uh, for officers in rural areas, in nighttime situations, that training has not yet been uh, implemented. Superintendent Campbell agreed that it is important. All right, so that was that was the morning of those uh, three lawyers. Uh, Natasha Najawan from the National Police Federation started out in the afternoon, uh, spent her time very openly, I think, advocating for more police officers to be hired in these situations to uh, bulk up the uh, the numbers in each uh, detachment in each region that is policed by the RCMP. Uh, Josh Bryson, I've already mentioned him. He represents the Bond family. So he talks about the Cobequid Court situation. So in the southern end of Portapik, it wasn't canvassed right away. It wasn't it wasn't investigated the night of the 18th. There was a, some passing, uh, you know, there some officers passed by some of the residences early in the 19th, but it wasn't until the afternoon that anybody checked. Now, there's no specific evidence that anybody there was left to die, left to bleed, or anything like that in, in you know, life-threatening conditions, but there certainly could have been. I mean, we don't know that because um, nobody really checked. Uh, so that was um, some points he made through Superintendent Campbell. He's uh, made those points before, and I think they're very good ones. So after... Josh Bryson, we got our first uh, look at James Lockyer, or first uh, listen to him, I guess. He was asking uh, uh, Superintendent Campbell whether he was involved in the decision to charge Lisa Banfield with his ammunition, supplying ammunition charge. And he was. Superintendent Campbell was involved in that decision, although he wasn't the main uh, decision maker. That appears to be uh, Corporal uh, Sergeant Jerry Rose Berthume. So uh, he was asked about Lockyer asked which Crown prosecutors were involved and whether any other vic when any victims organizations were involved. Doesn't sound like they were. He was asking about the public perception and the uh, the idea that these charges were laid in order to deflect criticism away from the RCMP. Superintendent Campbell says no. His concern from a public relations perspective was the notion of charging a person who was known to be a victim of domestic violence and the you know public relations issues that might have arisen as a result of that but uh, not 
admitting or accepting the notion that it might have been to deflect any criticism away from the police. Uh, so, of course, he's going to say that I, I, I don't think that was the only consideration. I think uh, Mr. Lockyer is probably correct. But the other thing that he said was more interesting, the other line of questioning, which confirmed something I had suspected after reading the interview that Ms. Banfield gave, the third one with Staff Sergeant Vardy, where in the middle of it, they're talking about this cross-border uh, gun smuggling activity and Lisa Banfield's knowledge of it, any understanding she may have had. And all of a sudden, Staff Sergeant Vardy starts giving her this paraphrased version of a charter warning, which would basically say, you have the right to counsel, you have the right not to say anything in the meantime, but he didn't give it properly. He didn't give it at the first of the interview. There was no charter warning, as I understand it, when Miss Banfield did the uh, walkthrough uh, later in that fall of 2020. So uh, some issues there. And what I've said before, it sounds like from James Lockyer's question that there was a strategy developed and that was the strategy was disclosed in the criminal disclosure for Miss Banfield and James Banfield and Brian Brewster, their, her brother-in-law, that the RCP were going to question them about this ammunition without giving them their uh, rights to counsel, which is a very risky strategy, uh, not a good one on the part of the RCMP, but um, I mean, because the RCMP know that if they're going to ask questions after giving that charter warning that people are less inclined to give answers, and that's why the charter warning is, is required to be given. So uh, certainly they seem to be trying to trick the uh, accused in some way to give self-incriminating uh, details, which they may have, which led to the charges. But I would say, and I guess Mr. Lockyer would probably agree, that these charges would, I mean, they pled not guilty. These charges would not have stood up in court. If they had proceeded in the face of this lack of a, a charter warning, all the evidence that was derived from the statements in the statements themselves, and then any evidence that was derived because of information provided in the statements would have been thrown out, would have been um, excluded from consideration in court. And unless there was some significant other uh, evidence, which there didn't seem to be, then all three of them would have been found uh, not guilty as a result. So, interesting, uh, certainly would have improved Miss Banfield's negotiating leverage in the restorative justice conversations, and uh, it appears that her uh, appearance, such as it was uh, before the Mass Casualty Commission, satisfied all of those uh, restorative justice um, conditions, and maybe that was the only one. So that was all quite interesting. Uh, so we're back uh, tomorrow, and I'm going to be there in person in Halifax at the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings. We're going to hear from... Chief Superintendent Chris Leather, uh, fresh off his appearance yesterday in the House of Commons uh, National Defense Public Safety Committee uh, to give some of those same accounts uh, tomorrow. So we'll uh, see all of that. Look forward to seeing people in person and checking in on the proceedings. I'll report back uh, once I'm able to get to uh, a place where I can do my video and do my written piece. And uh, so hopefully we'll do that within a reasonable time after things conclude tomorrow. But that's all uh, which to say thank you for watching and thank you for listening to all this and uh, we'll see you next time.